Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of nature-led gardening, a person who is living on a planet that's getting much, much uh, warmer and getting dangerously uh, more warm. And we're taping this show on November 30th. It's the first day of the United Nations COP 28th. Um, that international um, event is going on from November 30th to December 12th. How do we meet our demands for food in a way that is truly sustainable? And with us to talk about that question is Dr. Derek Pennington. He's a sustainability scholar at the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota and an editorial cartoonist. So welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So what? So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm a, a sustainability scholar, research scientist at the University of Minnesota over on the St. Paul campus here uh, locally. And uh, my interests are, are broad and diverse, but uh, always been interested looking uh, more into how we can think about trade-offs around different uh, agricultural practices, think about how that impacts society, the farmer, um, as well as uh, business and, and thinking about those intersections. And so I've been, uh, you know, involved with that work probably over 15 years now, 20 years now, uh, thinking about how we meet, you know, production as well as offset uh, negative impacts on society. So 20 years, um, are, are we beyond any hope at this point? And I, you know, I always have hope. Though folks who who might see some of my work or some of the editorial cartoons uh, may assume that I'm a, a hopeless cynic, but I think there's hope. I, I think part of the the challenge is uh, having more transparent, open discussions amongst each other, uh, trying to find those commonalities across what looks like quite disparate groups, and and trying to you know work together towards those commonalities. But then be very frank where we have trade offs and think about how. You know, what are the incentives uh, that might be necessary to to help address those, to push us along? I think we've looked at the past 20 years as been quite incremental uh, and quite marginal change, especially around climate change, but as well as other uh, environmental crises or social crises, um, you know, deforestation and biodiversity, similar. Um, but a lot of this comes down to the challenge of a lot of good intentions, but but there's this issue of of costs, and that can be self you know, an individual's cost going to the checkout counter and how, what to pay. Um, it can be also for a procurement manager at a large multinational company, a uh, food company or beverage company, looking at their cost ma- mandate, their margins. So I think uh, the challenge is, is addressing these issues uh, is really environmental economics 101. We're looking at uh, basically market externalities that affect society. And bringing those in to market prices, you know, there's a cost. And we've really leveraged the win-win so far. Those are the low-hanging fruit where, you know, both they're low costs and they have big benefits. But now we're really getting into those, the need to do these solutions that are quite expensive. And uh, it's a question of who pays, who wins, who loses in that. So I think uh, part of the hope is that we can have more open discussion uh, and be transparent about those, those challenges going forward. So what are some of the um, most effective things we can do? And let's just – we'll stay on the global level for right now um, to um, to leave a livable planet for our children. What are some of the basic – I mean, obviously, cover crops, we've been hearing about that. And uh, From an agriculture perspective, 
you know, it's really, um, you know, from a global, you know, view, vantage point and from a consumer vantage point, um, you know, probably the biggest thing we could do uh, would be to, you know, move towards more of a, what we hear people saying, plant-based diet, but uh, just reducing the amount of meat consumption we have uh, in our diets. It doesn't mean go no meat, but it just means, uh, you know, moving back to a, a more nutritional, it would be better for your own health as well as to the environment, and eating more plants. Uh, I'm one for eating more plants that look like plants versus um, more uh, engineered food. But I think that's a big, big lever. Food waste, attacking food waste. Um, you know, those are the two big climate, you know, addressing, you know, the, you know, methane emissions from uh, livestock is, is real and at such a high density, um, you know, that, that has super impacts on the climate. You know, it's, it's 28 times more potent than CO2 and it has, you know, real impacts at the short, you know, in the short term here. And so you're going after methane is, is really important. And a way to do that is reduce, uh, you know, the consumption and demand for livestock. That also has a huge impact on deforestation because a lot of places where livestock is raised globally is in places where there's high forest carbon stocks uh, in terms of the tropics. Um, and, and those are, you know, those are big challenges. Those are emissions we lose immediately. And yeah. it's really hard to build those emissions, you know, to sequester those emissions back up after it's gone. So right. cutting down the rainforest to have beef and soy is not a really environmental or a, 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 right. And even if you're going to do regenerative ag, as they would say, or with cover crops or with or you know reestablish a pasture, <laughs> it's going to take a really long time before we see. Uh, you know, where we, before we offset that previous carbon. And so with the COP28 that's going on, they are actually doing a lot of vegan food uh, at this. They, they, they made a real, they, they have a, like, a big African stage of using legumes and these different foods and really talking about that mainly a vegan diet. And that, that's a, a very powerful lever um, for some change. Yep, yep. And, you know, one of the things you put out on LinkedIn that really caught my eyes, because, it, it, I mean, it, it, it feels very overwhelming. It really does. And maybe we need to go to, how, you know, how how much of a challenge is the climate crisis at this moment? You know, it's it's huge. It's, it's immediate. It's now. We're feeling it now. Uh, you know, I, I think everybody globally feels it, and, and some are feeling it much worse than others. Um and so the crisis is now. We have a short period of time to to reduce our emissions to stay within, uh, you know, two degrees or one point five degree raise. We're, we're still going to see a temperature raise. We're going to have those impacts, um, and we don't have you know till twenty fifty or twenty thirty five. We need to do that, uh, you know, in the next five years or less. And um, you know, it's it's really it's a crisis right now that we are right in the middle of, and it can get worse. And it feels so daunting because there's not it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's simple solutions out there. Um, you know, no, there's there's not any simple solutions. There, there's definitely well, I'd say there's some simple solutions. There's known solutions that we've known about for a really long time now. Uh, the problem is, is they're they're costly or they're inconvenient uh, solutions to implement, and so you know that. That makes it difficult, especially you know with climate change. It can have, um, you know, it's 
its impacts on us is is seen sometimes at a more macro level. We may not feel it immediately personally um, in our day-to-day lives. I think we're starting to see that now. People are starting to get more aware of it. You hear more conversation about it. So that's very common. You know, as once things start to impact your well-being, you start to pay attention more to them. And hopefully that fosters, you know, greater civic conversation that hopefully starts to translate more to, you know, the – you know, in the U.S., when we go to the polls, this becomes more of an issue. But, but I'm being a little idealistic and hoping that'll happen in the definitely not in the next election cycle. So the other side, and it is fun. You have a bunch of editorial cartoonists, uh, cartoons, and so here's one about um, cop, and it's like a, um, it's a, um, a Santa Claus with a little boy on there, and it's saying um, a toy. I know, I know, I know how we're going to solve the climate crisis. We're going to have a toy, and this toy is going to convert all our CO2 emissions into people food, and uh, so there's going to be no need for crops. We'll have this kind of magical thinking. So and and the the cartoon's pretty funny, but is that part of the reason why we haven't had why humans on the planet doesn't that that there's not been a collaborative um, uh, a way forward is because a, a lot of people are kind of stuck in imaginative thinking that we're going to have a technology is going to come and change it and we're going to fix it with this way or but it's but it doesn't get into the hard knocks reality. Yeah, I think human society has you know definitely relied on, you know, technology to solve these issues, especially, uh, you know, modern civilizations. And I think there is this hope that, you know, technology will continue to solve the problem. And, um, you know, carbon capture or or direct carbon capture from the air, there's a lot of these, uh, you know, we can keep, you know, emitting the same emissions, but we'll just have these machines that suck it on the air. Uh, but it turns out those things, those those machines are quite expensive and not very efficient in terms of their return on investment. Um, so there's a lot of money that is going towards climate solutions, but potentially going to the wrong ones, where the return on investment in terms of uh, you know greenhouse gases removed versus dollars spent is highly inefficient. But someone is benefiting off those somewhere, you know. Uh, and so those those are part of the challenges. And, and this example of COP is, you know, the cartoon. Uh, that you're referencing, and, and just to let you know, I you know I do a lot of editorial cartoons and posts on LinkedIn as a way to you know as a concerned citizen to sort of bring science and satire together. I kind of talk about grounding our sustainability platitudes, and it's more of a conversation uh, with you know, sustainability professionals. But there'll be a lot of those folks, uh, you know, gathering at COP28, and there'll be you know a lot of business interests, a lot of startups, a lot of investors coming together, not just government uh, delegations and but there'll be a huge amount of private sector NGO groups and everybody's going to be selling the new solution and I think part of it is slowing down and saying okay we got these great solutions but let's start understanding what's the trade-offs across those solutions what does it do for climate what does it do for water what does it do for uh, you know our individual well-being people in general uh, and economic well-being I think that's just a really critical thing we need to do to look at these solutions in a holistic manner. A holistic manner, economic well-being is connected to a living planet. It's not really all that complicated. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with sustainability scholar um, Dr. David, uh, Derek uh, Pennington. We'll be right back.
let's have Prudence come out to play. So uh, this is Food Freedom Radio. We're taping this on November third, the first of November thirtieth. Um, um, the first day of the United Nations COP twenty eight is going to be starting this week. So um, how do we meet our demands for food in a way that's sustainable? And with us is sustainability scholar at the in the Department of Applied Economics um, for the University of Minnesota, Dr. Derek Pentington, and you are also an editorial cartoonist. So we're going to talk more about your cartoons. But first, let's talk a little bit about your background in applied economics. Um, give us an overview of your um, career. Uh, yeah, so I uh, you know, started out in Ohio. I'm from uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and uh, came to, uh, you know, did an undergrad in biology, um, got interested in the health of the planet. I was actually pre-med and started taking some ecology courses and realized, oh, wait, there's uh, this whole other kind of way of uh, thinking about medicine and, and health and, and planetary health. And then I came to the University of Minnesota and did a Ph.D. Uh, in the conservation science program. At the time, it was called the conservation biology program. And that exposed me to a lot of different perspectives um, across you know, ecological, social, and um, you know, economic dimensions of conservation, sustainability. So I did a PhD uh, looking at urban ecology, actually focused on birds, and uh, and then did a postdoc in applied economics uh, department where I really got exposed to thinking about um, how do we measure the economic benefits of, from nature to people, and thinking about economics quite broadly in, in terms of well-being isn't just profits or market returns, but there's also these non-market benefits that aren't valued or these externalities. What? No way! Yeah, so a lot it's of it's the- not all. It's you're kidding. <laughs> and uh, and part of our, you know, that's the work that that became um, that's uh, you know that we hear around natural capital or nature based solutions. Yeah, uh, the yeah. Na- natural capital, but I don't know if everyone's heard that phrase, natural capital. Right. So there's a big emphasis on natural capital or biodiversity at COP uh, 28. There'll be uh, a framework uh, discussed around. There's a biodiversity framework that was passed at the last uh, biodiversity COP, and that's now going to be integrated with the climate COP because obviously, uh, when we think of land use and, and, and carbon and forests and grasslands and wetlands, obviously those are the places also where biodiversity and nature is is hanging out as well. And it turns out they're quite uh, uh, related uh, uh, in terms of the solutions to. Uh, you know, mitigate climate change or to save biodiversity. And so there is an effort around natural capital. It's just thinking of that as another form of capital, along with social, financial capital, uh, looking at natural capital as, as something on the balance sheet that we haven't been accounting for. Uh, we're mostly looking at uh, market returns uh, that are, are, you know, ignoring the impacts on water quality and what society has to do to address that or impacts on air quality and the effect that has on human health and how we have to address that through, uh, you know, health insurance costs and through medical bills Um, or thinking about how, you know, the impacts on our, uh, you know, our health in terms of the food we eat, the nutritional impacts. Um, So there's a lot, even just looking from the agricultural lens, uh, several externalities that are ignored. So there is the, the profits Market profits, and those are important. We don't want to discount those, but there's other benefits. So part of the work uh, that I continue to do is is how do we, you know, estimate those uh, non-market benefits, if you will, multiple benefits of of the land, and then think about, you know, what are policies where we can align uh, 
those different objectives. So we get win-wins. But more often than not, there's actually win-losses, and then it becomes an issue of how do we optimize or, or minimize those trade-offs. Can you give us an example where we can understand these? Sure, sure. I guess uh, you know in Minnesota we could look at uh, the Minnesota River Basin. It's uh, a large agriculturally dominated uh, watershed. It's it's a place where we have high uh, phosphorus and sediment loading. So Minnesota has a total maximum daily load uh, uh, issue, uh, and they have a target trying to reduce the amount of phosphorus and sediment going into the Minnesota River. That has an impact on downstream in terms of either creating problems with navigation along uh, the Mississippi River. So the Minnesota River would flow into the Mississippi, uh, and then that has an impact on locks and dams and dredging. But there's also the issue with phosphorus as a nutrient uh, going into eventually uh, the Gulf of Mexico is usually what's cited, and we have you know a hypoxic zone. Uh, the side of, size of Rhode Island. So a that, huge dead zone. is Right, the dead zone. And so that has a huge impact on fisheries. You know, last estimate I heard is, you know, over 600 million annually. And so um, so part of it is connecting, you know, what your act, what actions are occurring in one place and then how does it impact uh, different, you know, people and places, uh, you know, sometimes very far away. Um, and so an idea there would be looking at a farmer and saying, okay – Part of your practices impact um, negatively phosphorus uh, loadings into uh, the Mississippi River eventually. We want to reduce that. How do we do that? And so an example would be, you know, the Department of Natural – or Department of – Minnesota Department of uh, the Pollution Control Agency, Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, you know, posed a question to us, okay, we want to meet this 80 percent TMDL. We want to reduce phosphorus and sediment by 80 percent. But we want to do it in a way that's cost effective. We want to have, we want to do this in a way that's cost the least. So how do we do this so we don't impact yields on farms? So we benefit uh, and mitigate climate impacts. So we want to do that as well. We also want to address, you know, habitat for wildlife, recreation opportunities. So one of the first projects I did as a postdoc was, how do we meet this eighty percent reduction in a way that's, you know, basically has the least impact on market based. Economics and and as you would, would expect, it's it's not you know there may be like ten percent reduction we could get in these phosphorus loadings at no cost if we just sort of looked at a watershed and said okay what if we could play God and just <laughs> move different you know cover crops better uh, nutrition or nutrient management here's where we're going to put buffers here's where we're going to put a detention basin where would we put those uh, you know across the landscape. And do it in such a way that we'd have the least impact on a farmer's return. So there's marginal lands we can target. There's areas where we put, shouldn't be growing crops that would be better to have, uh, you know, a, a best management practice that would reduce the phosphorus. But it turned out, like, that was really difficult to do. Like, any time we went to try to get up to that 50% or 80%, it was a huge cost. You know, sometimes, you know, 50% of the, you know, annual re- economic returns, the annual agricultural production uh, coming off the, that watershed. So for us, we started to look at examples like, well, what if farmers got paid, you know, the cost of the carbon they're mitigating? So what if they got paid a carbon price? What if they got paid for their water quality benefits they're providing society? What if they got paid for their recreational benefits? And as we estimated those, you know, put a dollar value on those benefits, it's like, okay, the farmer's going to get those benefits. So for every 
ton of phosphorus he reduces, he's going to get this amount of money back. We found out you could meet 50% at no cost if we brought in those other values. But of course, someone has to pay the farmer for those values. So that's where we're at. Yeah. Um, so we're talking with Dr. Derek Pennington. He's a sustainability scholar in the Department of Applied Economics. Um, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. I'm Laura Hedlund. Well, it deep within my soul. Straight or say good night. Um, we're talking uh, as as you're here in the show. The United Nations COP28 is happening on the international stage. Um, the um, we know heat waves, droughts, fires, melting glaciers, rising sea levels. If we continue on this path, we will be losing 99 percent of coral. We'll be gone. And uh, I mean, the the it, there's a there's, it's it's a it's a desperate situation. But at the same time that it's desperate, the solutions are probably all out there, and that's. Or are they? So and now I got that. So I'm talking with Dr. Derek Pennington. He's a sustainable scholar at in the Department of Applied Economics. Are the solutions out there? Yeah, there's a, a lot of uh, existing solutions. There's a lot of management practices, um, best management practices that we've known about for quite quite a long time. It's just we haven't felt the urgency to act. I can think about uh, my days at World Wildlife Fund. I spent a decade. Uh, roughly there uh, at the U.S. office, and we would do a lot of engagement with uh, private sector companies, and they would set, you know, at the time it was 2013, I had just started, and we were setting, uh, well, I'd been there a couple of years, we were just setting a, uh, with with this large company, a partner, uh, setting their, you know, carbon emission target. And this is before these science-based targets came into effect probably five years ago. But they're like, oh, yeah, we have this target, we're going to reduce our carbon intensity, we're going to have this reduction of 25%. By 2020, and of course, we got to 2016. Three years later, they really hadn't made that much progress. We weren't even considering their supply chain. We were just considering sort of uh, very direct missions that we sometimes call these scope one, scope two emissions now, which are energy use and direct operation use. Scope three is sort of the upstream and downstream of a of an individual company. But as we were, you know, working on these commitments, we they hadn't gotten that far, and we were still six years out, five years out. But all of a sudden, there became a new target. There was a science-based target that came out. And, of course, I was going – and WF came up with it. And, of course, I'm going to like our uh, – I think at the time our COO and saying, what are these science-based targets? What were we using before? You know, And I was like, were they science-based? What's going on? And, and it really you know, – it allowed our partner at the time to say, well, you know what? We want to stop and set a science-based target. We want to – and what that meant was we're going to look at what is our share of carbon emissions – that we need to reduce to help us meet a 1.5 degree, uh, you know, level. So we're going to be less, you know, so that we don't go over 1.5 degrees in terms of global warming. Um, we want to know what we need to do. So what is our amount of emissions? So we're not just re- reducing to reduce, but we'll have this target. And it turns out they were pretty good because it, it still became a 25% reduction, but now by 2025, I think. So they pushed it further 
And I, you know, we spent a year and a half coming up with this new target. And I said to the person leading the the carbon engagement from WWF, I'm like, so, you know, in terms of the practices they need to do, are they any different than we were talking about in 2013? They're like, no. I was like, so we just wasted a year not addressing those practices. But a lot of it has to do with the cost. There's very real trade-offs, you know, and, and for some of these lovers, especially, you know, multinational companies, governments that can really be these big lovers to institute these pretty straightforward, what sound like straightforward solutions. Uh, the big impediment is, you know, being able to do that in a cost-effective way. And, and as long as profits are based off of, um, you know, you know, market-driven, don't consider any of these externalities, it's really difficult to say I'm going to ethically, you know, based on my personal ethics or what I feel like I should do in terms of societal ethics – I'm going to make a decision that's not just about market profits, but I'm going to do it because I care about the world. It's really tough for that to happen. Really so, so that's why you know we have a lot of solutions sitting here. We're we're not acting on. We're not acting on, and, and that we're going to. I want to get into that externalities, but I also want to talk now about the cartoon work you do because that seems sure. like it's a sort of a a, a a a lever to sort of release some of your inner. Um, why do you do cartoons? Yeah, so the cartoons. I when I was in grade school, I doodled all the time. I was in sixth grade. I was the out student, outstanding <laughs> uh, artist. You know, for the you know the elementary school, Evendale Elementary School. <laughs> um, and then it's something that I did through high school. I was actually before I, you know when I was graduating high school, I was supposed to be you know I was doing a portfolio class. I was going to go to some art school, um, but then I got interested in science as well, and uh, I came back to these cartoons probably the past. Uh, last four or five years. And it really became, you know, as I was expressing sort of my writing and frustration, a lot of this from, you know, experiences at the World Wildlife Fund and working with multinational companies, working with uh, governments, working with NGOs, and just seeing the trade-offs, the sort of behind the scenes, the the messiness of it, the, you know, really greenwashing that became the, you know, really was the currency of a lot of these efforts. And it, it was kind of known that we were setting ambitious targets. We kind of knew they weren't going to meet them. But the idea of incremental change and the idea like we have to, you know, applaud folks on the outside, but on the inside we're going to try to to move them, you know, and just looking back on it being like we haven't done anything. We set all these targets, nothing happened. So the cartoons are a way to, you know, as I started to post on LinkedIn, realizing that's where a lot of sustainability professionals are conversing, it was really an opportunity to point out, I guess, really the elephants in the room and have a way to, you know, create some pithy, concise illustrations, sometimes taking – you know, taking – sometimes the punchline comes from a meeting I just had. But, <laughs> but basically I uh, – these are things that I – you know, you can go on to a link, LinkedIn page for, for Derek Pennington. You can also have an Instagram called Grounding Platitudes. But it's basically uh, cartoons associated with essays and, and looking at, um, you know, topics really specific to uh, sustainability and, and, and the sustainability profession. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's it's a way to uh, you know generate some different ways to to, to communicate these complex problems. So um, I, this is radio, but I'm going to try my best at describing some of the cartoons. So here's one with a uh, cop twenty eight, a kid with a very very messy room, and it says, "Mom, but look at those forward looking statements." And then there's the big mess on the floor. Um, and here, another one is um, the online buzz says, "A good business is an ethical business. We just need to focus on our business, how our impacts human beings." I don't know. We never chose to do the right by society thing before. Why should anyone expect? 
expect us to now. Um, so, um, so, but part of when you talk about externalities as an economist and this kid having this messy room, so that's part of that externality and that, that need to clean up one O's mess. It's, it's actually a deep um, economic concept. Yeah, so that, that cartoon came from uh, – uh, so it's interesting to me. I also have another cartoon or observation. And, and this is, I think, for folks who got you know PhDs or did masters and did this, you know, sort of went through the research process and went and – got peer-reviewed and hammered by their peers for how things weren't needed to be changed and made all these revisions and finally got a published paper. Um, and you're told, like, you know, that's the holy grail. And then you come out into the, you know, I guess the non-academic world and you see, like, oh, my gosh, there's all these what they call white papers or gray literature. And and they're they're basically not peer-reviewed. They're not – they're put out by, you know, self-published often by uh, the organization itself. You know, WF has a lot of these – a lot of the big consulting firms have these private consulting firms. So Boston Consulting, uh, you know McKinsey, um, EY. We have you know Price Cooper. All these groups are publishing you know content, and it hasn't gone through peer review. So there's really this uh, you know frustration of like why those are those aren't going through peer review, but those are what. We're making decisions off of it's, and, and I sort of have a cartoon where someone's talking, you know, the, an academic and a private consultant are talking, and she's like, "So, are you going to publish your findings and get them peer reviewed?" He's like, "No, this is for decision making. Are you crazy?" <laughs> and so, you know, so there's sort of this uh, weird thing that we expect, and, and, and so, and so that's that's sort of what's happening, and you'll you'll see an onslaught of these these, and, and I'm not I'm not going to I'm not discounting the science in those, but it's just that they haven't been. Um, verified or peer-reviewed often. And so there's not a lot of – often the methods are, are not fully disclosed because often that's the secret sauce that the consulting is – you know, consultants making money off of if they have a special model or tool. This is definitely an issue when we think about how we're disclosing uh, greenhouse gas emissions and how they're being modeled and how they're being estimated and how they're being verified. There basically aren't any verification right now. Um, and so with this cartoon, with this messy room, this is basically a kid in his room. And he's telling mom, hey, you know, when I said I was going to clean this, that was a forward-looking statement. And that, <laughs> and that came from looking at um, these these uh, private consultant reports. And they have disclaimers where they basically say, or if you see a company make a commitment, there will be a legal – there's legalese around what is a forward-looking statement. It basically means you're making a statement that you shouldn't – you're going to use particular language like ambition and, uh, you know, should and could and you know hopefully and there's about 20 different words that you can legally use to make sure you're not held accountable if you don't achieve the commitment and so in a sense all this messy stuff happening and you're like well i set this commitment but i you know i, I you can't hold me to it because i used you know these forward-looking statements and this comes out of sort of doing that for finan financial forward-looking statements it's basically you know taking them off the hook and so using yeah, the kid trying to leverage his legal ease and saying, "Hey, I didn't actually say you can't hold me account for it." <laughs> yeah. So, in uh, in practice or in the real world, um, we have regulatory approaches. So, right now, you could have a regulatory approach, a, a carrot approach, where government can bail out the externalities of agriculture and, and industry. Um, but another way of doing that would be to internalize these externalities more fairly. Would be for government to pass policies that would internalize these hidden costs. What the heck does that mean? And is there any ways of achieving that? 
Um, you know, that's definitely a, uh, you know, a lot of economic speak there, um, or finance speak, but basically, uh, you know, and we, again, it's, it's real simple when the procurement manager is setting, you know, at the table or they sometimes call them the category manager. And let's say they're looking at the price of ingredients to go into a Kit Kat and they have the sustainability person in the room, maybe two, maybe not. Uh, maybe the really forward-looking companies do. And that person's coming in and saying, well, you could use this Rainforest Alliance certified chocolate instead of this other chocolate because we think it's going to have benefits on our greenhouse gas uh, commitment. Like, well, that will be better. Um, or you can get Bon Sucro certified sugar, which is supposed to have benefits for biodiversity and water and pay farmers better. But the procurement person is saying, well, my I'm basically been told that you know, I have to continue operating on a cost mandate. Part of my ethical duty to stakeholders, uh, sh- shareholders is to, you know, be the most cost efficient I can. And if you're these these other things, Rainforest Alliance, Bon Sucro, these certified uh, ingredients that are starting to bring in and address, you know, having less carbon uh, emissions, having less water quality impacts, having fair wages to workers that costs more. I got to pay more for that. And I can't even maybe pay a dollar more per ton for sugar or a dollar more for chocolate. That's not going to fly. I've been told to basically, you know, we got to meet those commitments at no cost or less, which you can see the challenge, just like if you're at the grocery store and you want to bring these in, oh, I want to get Rainforest certified coffee. Well, it's going to cost you $3 more. more, Are you going to do it? So that's one example of of the challenges of bringing in those. So we're, we're talking about sustainability uh, with Dr. Derek Pensington. We'll be right back. for uh, and, and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. Ooh, try to leave a sustainable living world for future generations. Uh, it should be easy. I mean, it should be one of the easiest things to do in the world. How would we do that? I'm going to ask that question to Dr. Derek uh, Pentington, a sustainable scholar in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota and a cartoonist. So how can how can we – I mean, you want to – there are so many things we can be doing. Yeah, just to follow up on that last example where we were talking about these you know, increased market costs uh, to address – uh, sustainability solutions. So a company trying to meet their commitments or maybe individual trying to meet their own personal, say, greenhouse gas com- uh, commitment where they're trying to re- reduce their emissions. There's, you know, those products that are out there, organic certified others, um, they're trying to account for those uh, externalities and, and therefore they cost more. Um, it's reflective, not necessarily of the benefits they're providing, but what people are willing to pay more for what they perceive as increased benefits. That's why organic Produce has a premium on the Rainforest Certified uh, Alliance. Uh, coffee has a premium. But part of those government solutions we have that would come in would be, well, if we had a carbon tax, and we've heard about uh, that there used to be bipartisan support for cap-and-trade uh, back in 2007, 2008. There was a, a video you can look up of Newt Gingrich and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and Nancy Pelosi sitting on a couch outside the Capitol t- advocating for cli- uh, climate cap-and-trade. And, of course, it blew up. 
Uh, and then we've we've basically have avoided any sort of more penalty, regulatory, tax-based approach. The recent Inflation Reduction Act is all about carrots. It's just all we're just about carrots. We're just throwing money. The and, carrots and, the and, is, and, and the not, idea, the, reg- not and the, the regulation. Right. The carrots are meant to be okay when we're having that conversation about that extra two dollars to address uh, reduce you know uh, GHG emissions. Well, the government is going to give you that extra two or three dollars. The regulatory approach would be like, well, we're actually going to you know tax you for that, and you're going to have to pay us. Well, if and, you do that. So there's, and, so there's, there's two different approaches. And so, and so you put out something on LinkedIn that it would take less than 3% of total net profits earned by just eight of the primary buyers and traders of agriculture mm-hmm. commodities uh, last year to cover um, the cost of uh, adopting cover crops across 30 million acres in the Midwest. Yeah. So most economists or even when I told my former uh, postdoc advisor at, at, about, you know, sort of a, a back of the envelope sort of estimate there, which was – you know, really, I was curious. There, you know, there's a commitment by a, a trade group called the Midwest Row Crop Collaborative, and it is it's these sort of eight major buyers of corn and soy in the Midwest, and they've set a commitment to be 100 percent or be most of them have you know regenerative ag commitments. And in this case, it was to get 30 million acres uh, regenerative, which is mostly cover crops. And so we kind of you know we can estimate what is the average cover crop uh, cost, which is around 50 dollars an acre to adopt because you're not selling those cover crops. So that's kind of the farmer's cost. And if we think about some fairness of the farmer's cost being uh, covered, you know, making them whole, you know, what would that cost if we take that, that $50 and multiply it across 30 million acres? It's about $1.5 uh, billion. Well, that means every year, because every year there's that cost. And then I just took the those eight companies and looked at their annual net profits that were publicly reported for last year, and it was around 47 billion dollars. And so you could look at uh, – you you get an idea of – we're never going to fix that. We all know that. But there is that sort of issue about fairness and why why are we giving them more money to do this? So we're going to – there's so much I want to say. But like – so you have a nice – you use Columbo in some of your cartoons. Yeah, I Yeah, Yeah. I do too. So uh, wait. If you you assume their underlying motive was profit, then all the puzzle pieces fall into place. Um, And so so Biden passed a three – $0.8 $0.8 billion USDA climate smart subsidies. And to the credit, you can go on the USDA and you can see where all this money is spent. And a lot of this is doing really good mm-hmm. work. And I'm glad for that transparency. Um, is it enough? Well, I mean, obviously, if we're thinking about cover crops as sort of that solution, and I just want to stress the the climate mitigation benefits of, of cover crops in terms of carbon sequestration is, is, is how they're usually talked about. It's pretty marginal and, and little. And if we're Going to wait for you know cover crops or perennial crops to sequester carbon to offset uh, the amount of carbon we need to reduce to get within you know under 1.5 degrees. That that's not going to happen. It's too slow. Um, but in terms of the water quality benefits, that's why I kind of joke that the climate smart commodities should have been called the water smart commodities because most of those practices they're doing have huge water quality benefits. There's very little practices again addressing those things we talked about at the beginning in terms of. Methane emissions from livestock. There's nothing addressing food waste. There's very little talking about how we move more to plant, uh, plant-based or lower meat consumption. It's all really cover crops and no-till, and there's some nutrient management, and those are going to have benefits, but still aren't the big, the big ones. But, um, but you know, it's not enough as we identified the, you know, that that 3.1 billion dollars or 3.8 billion dollars. Uh, it's going to be spread out over you know four-year projects. Um, 
and again, we just realized, you know, it's you know, fifty dollars an acre. It's you know, we we estimated one point five billion a year to do that on thirty million acres. Um, and just to give you some you know point of reference, you know, Iowa has thirty eight million acres of agriculture. So we're really just talking about one state doing cover crops in terms of their agri- agricultural production. So obviously the 3.1 isn't enough. The two, you know, the, the 16 billion coming out of the IRA uh, inflation reduction act towards climate smart ag also isn't enough. So um, we're down to our last two minutes and obviously we haven't solved the climate crisis and um, uh, 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 yeah, darn it. Um, but I, I love this one sentence I read from you and it said, um, you can't take the culture out of agriculture. And uh, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think that that I'm hearkening sort of a, a heavy influence on my thinking, uh, being out at his farm. Uh, Wendell Berry, who's a philosopher and sort of this I think he won the National Humanities Prize under the I – mean, Obama was in the administration. But he's talked a lot about you know, eating is an agricultural act and that everybody who eats is part of the solution and part of the problem. And I think that's always important to, to see both sides of that. Um, and I think culture you – know, he wrote a book called The Unsettling of America that was written in 1977 when I was born. Um, and it was called you know, Agriculture and Culture and – and that book, I remember meeting him the first time. It was the 25th anniversary of that book. And he said, you know, in the preface of that, he said, it's kind of disappointing that this book is just as relevant today as it was then. And I think you would hear Wendell say the same thing now. Um, and so there's the idea of culture is that, you know, it's not, you know, sometimes I try to tell my climate scientists and my climate advocacy, you know, advocacy people, uh, you know, we often get, you know, think about this as input output of just GHG emissions versus proteins versus calories versus nutrients, and we kind of forget that there's this. I mean, we just, you know, the United States had a gathering around food in many households, and uh, you know, there's households that don't have food, and there's households that had a lot of food, and there's uh, cultural, you know, differences in terms of the food we make and the food we eat, and and it's just recognizing the growing of the food is cultural as well as the eating, and just recognizing. You know, we got to think about that as well, that there's other benefits from eating than just – and that's why I'm always worried about well, – let's go no, an no, economy, no animals, Having no an economy that's grounded on, um, on clean water and healthy soils and vibrant livelihood, that living economics. That's part of the Living economics. Too. So thank you so much, Dr. Derek uh, Pennington, uh, University of Minnesota, and thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you for having me.